I want to get a couple of pickups if that's cool. It is cool because I yeah. said it's cool. <laughs> Are we going to keep this in the episode, no. Sylvie? No. <laughs> okay. Um, I definitely want to go back again. Sylvie being like the producer should be in the episode just to keep it better, you know? <laughs> I like it. I like it. Hello and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I'm your host, Chris Savage. I am joined, as always, by Sylvie Lubau, our <laughs> podcast producer extraordinaire. From her live, not live, she's, not she's live, zooming yeah. in from Brooklyn, New York City. Brooklyn, New York. You're from someplace in New York. Yeah, I'm in Brooklyn. You nailed it. Great. Born and raised. Born and raised. That's fantastic. <laughs> we have a great guest on the show today, Leela Fever, who is the co-founder of Common Craft. Common Craft is a small independent business that is run out of Seattle, um, and Lee and his wife run it. It's just the two of them. And they were pioneers in the explainer video space. So they explained um, RSS. They made videos that were like, what is social networking? And social networking was just happening. Um, Lee talks about this in the interview, but Twitter, he made a video to explain what Twitter was because no one understood it. And it was such a good explanation video that Twitter put it on their homepage as the way to explain what their product is to just give you yes. a sense of what he does. And uh, it's a really fun interview because he talks about what makes a good explanation. We get a little meta <laughs> in there. Um, and then he has some other things that he explains to us. So I think you should listen. I think it'll be a fun <laughs> it's one. It's going to be a fun one. But before we do that. What has you talking too loud, Sylvie? Okay. Something that has me talking too loud. This is hot off the press. This is just in. Oh, okay. Talking too loud about my sister's wound. Okay. Wh what? She got, <laughs> she was wounded. Oh my God, was, there's always a health thing. There's always a health thing, isn't there? There's always a health thing. She was at a bar last night, just standing, chatting. Somebody threw a dart at the dartboard and it bounced <gasps> off the dartboard and hit her in the back of her leg. And it caused like a puncture. And so she called me this morning and she was like, do you think I have to go to the doctor? And I was like, yes. Yes, you do. So I think she needs a tetanus shot. Tetanus shot, like. exactly. Yeah. And she was like, really? And I was like, yes. So that's what has me talking too loud. Tetanus. Darts. Shots. Shots. Yeah, great. Good. Well, I think everyone who is listening to this or watching this right now, they're just delighted. <laughs> that's what we want to hear about. We want to hear about darts going to legs. We want to hear about your sister <laughs> not even thinking to go to the doctor after having a puncture wound. Um, <laughs> you know what this is an occasion for several explainer videos, how to play darts, how to treat wounds, how to be a good sister. Well, you know, we have just the right person <laughs> to talk to us about explanations, transferring knowledge, teaching people and explaining things to your sister, like don't stand so close to the dartboard. And that is Leela Fever. So let's cut to that interview with Lee. All right, well, welcome to the show, Lee. So excited to have you here. It's great to be here, Chris. It's been too long, my friend. It's been too long. It has been. I, I, you know, I think the last time we saw each other face to face was uh, in Seattle many years ago. Yes, you had a house, and then the next time I saw you, you're doing like this crazy remodel on it, <laughs> and I think you like added another floor. Am I right in remembering that? Yeah, that was about 2010. 
Um, okay. I don't know exactly when that was, but one of my best memories from that house is you and Brendan showing up in Halloween costumes. And like, <laughs> oh, yes. Both of you were like uh, Vikings. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. We were in Seattle and went to a Halloween party. Yep. And somehow we ended up with Viking costumes and then we wanted to see you. I feel like I have a photo of that that we can find. But um, anyway, well, here we are now on the show and you already got me talking too loud. But um, <laughs> what's what's got you talking too loud these days, Lee? <laughs> you know, um, I've been reading this book, uh, Nor Norwegian Wood, which is kind of a fascinating book. I live in a more rural place now, and the book says that a lot of men reach a point in their lives where they become more interested in wood. <laughs> and I feel, like, <laughs> I feel like I'm approaching that right now because I have a wood pile that needs to be split. I just built some garden beds with my wife for our garden. Wood is just becoming a bigger part of my life, and I'm, I'm here for it. What have you learned about wood? Well, I'm not a woodworker. I don't have the right tools for being an actual woodworker. Um, but, you know, we build fires a lot. And I'm, you know, building a fire is something like you don't just like learn how to do it and suddenly you're perfect. It's like a lifelong thing. It's like you yeah. always improve. And so that's that's one of the exciting things is learning about that, learning about fireplaces, learning about uh, how to build an efficient fire. And chopping wood is fun. It's one of those things that they say in these books that... Uh, it takes all your focus. Like it's almost like meditating. Like you, when you're chopping mm -hmm. wood, if you don't focus on it, then you could hurt yourself. And so I love chopping wood. That's like one of my hobbies now. And uh, it's physical and it allows me to be outside and uh, it just kind of clears my mind. That's awesome. And yeah, it's funny you say that. I know a lot of people have gotten into wood. I myself <laughs> have a giant wood pile to, uh, to make <laughs> fires. And um, there's a joy in realizing that it does take like practice and skill to get good at making a fire, yeah. right? Of like not putting too much on there at first and smothering the thing and letting the flames get just so and you get into the positioning and yeah. I'm not chopping my own wood. I just get it dropped off in the driveway and it takes like four <laughs> hours to get into <laughs> totally. the house. Well, ours gets delivered, but they're still really big pieces. So I've got to chop those into smaller pieces. It's like breaking rocks into smaller rocks. But... That's exciting. That's great. Well, I'm glad we started with this. I'm glad I'm glad this is where <laughs> we are. It's a strong foundation, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. a strong foundation. Oh, nice, nice. You know, another strong foundation. Let's talk about Common Craft. All right. So Lee, for those who don't know, what is Common Craft? When did it start? Um, tell us everything. All right. Uh, so Common Craft is um, a small company. It's really just my wife, Sachi, and I. And we're known for making explainer videos that take something usually technology related and explain it in about three minutes. And we're known as one of the pioneers of the uh, explainer industry. I say in the, in the YouTube age, you know, starting in 2007. And the way it happened was we were both into social media, the early days of social media, and really wanted people to adopt it and saw that there was an explanation problem, that people were not using these free and amazing tools because they didn't really understand why would I use a wiki? What is RSS? What is social networking? So we thought if we could make videos that help people understand what these things are and why they could matter to them, that um, it might be good for our consulting, which is what we were doing at the time with Common Craft was doing online community consulting. So we just like didn't have any experience in video, didn't have any pro tools. We were making videos in our basement with like floor lamps and, uh, and that <laughs> sort of thing. And uh, the first video we made was called RSS in plain English. And it was meant to explain RSS and 
At the time, blogging was a big deal. Every blogger wanted people to subscribe to their RSS feed, but didn't have a way to show people what in the hell an RSS feed is and why they should care. So we made a video and then put it on YouTube. People embedded that video on their blogs so they could finally explain it. And that video really was the start of something that changed our entire careers. We suddenly became known as video producers and the pioneers of this new sort of genre of videos that uses, at the time, paper cutouts on a whiteboard. And uh, as a two-person company, it was just uh, you know a world-changing thing to put this video out there and suddenly become known as video producers. And then within a couple of months, we were hired by Google to make a video called Google Docs in Plain English and worked with a lot of companies after that. And that was just the original start of it all was um, just this fun idea. And uh, it kind of went from there. What do you think makes a great explainer video? You know, I think the biggest thing is that it really has to be focused on making something easy to understand. You know, like it's not just about marketing or selling or look how cool we are. It's like, I'm going to move you from a perspective of not understanding to suddenly realizing that you've been missing the big idea. I mean, that's the goal. Often, I think that the best explainer videos are like two to three minutes. They, they can be shorter depending on the content. And I think they've got to engage people right off the bat and talk to them in a way that says like, this is a problem. This is something that is missing in your life that once you get it, it's going to change everything. Um, I often say that the formula is meet Bob. Um, he's unhappy and has problems. Oh, look, Bob found a solution. Uh, don't you want to be like Bob? Like, it's really a basic formula of kind of showing, uh, I like to say a story involves people, like showing someone go through a process where at the end, they've reached a goal of understanding something and for the viewer to say like, okay, I followed that. I want to be like that. I want to get there too. Um, in terms of marketing, I really think that the best explainer videos kind of set that foundation of understanding where they don't, they don't have to know the details of the technology or the features or whatever. They understand it. And if they understand it, that hopefully motivates them to keep learning and to read the website and to actually dive into it. I, I call that like becoming a customer of the information. Like, oh, now that I understand crypto, now I'm going to, you know, invest or Buy an NFT Buy a bunch or of whatever. NFTs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, Listen, that's if, the big if you make an explainer video for for crypto, that might be my first NFT purchase. I'm just saying. Oh yeah, it's no, come I've... up a bunch on the show. <laughs> oh, you're saying he should make an NFT of the explainer video <laughs> of crypto. And it's free for the world, but you That's would buy the I rights to saying. it. That would be That's, amazing, Sylvie. That yeah, wasn't yeah. it, but, no. <laughs> but okay. But I like it. So you you made some of the very first most fundamental explainer videos that were in the internet era. What did it feel like to be a pioneer in the space? It was overwhelming at the time. I don't think that I recognized that we were being known as that for a while. Um, but I think that we were the first movers in that space. So what it meant was that people saw our videos, like the ones that explained wikis and RSS and said, oh, that's what I need for my product. And there just weren't other companies doing that. I, I think the commercial animation space wasn't really focused on these kinds of videos. And so we literally were getting, you know, seven to 10 emails a day from companies who were wanting to uh, hire us to make videos. And we're just That's a two-person yeah. two company in our house trying to think like, oh my gosh, what do we do with this? 
Like, how do we, do we build an agency? Do we hire? And um, one of the first things we did was we realized that we had a lot of demand, but not a lot of supply. Like we didn't have an agency, we couldn't scale. We weren't really sure we wanted to scale. But at the same time, a lot of the uh, producers who were making videos suddenly started to say, we're making explainer videos too, hire us. And um, we looked at that and said, wow, you know, they're, they're like established agencies. They'll probably eat our lunch eventually if we don't figure something out. So we created something called the Explainer Network. And we went to those companies and said, hey, you're doing great work. Um, we are the first movers in this space. We're getting a lot of demand. We're going to create um, a, basically a little marketplace on our website so that when demand comes to us, we'll point them to the marketplace and then it'll help your business. And that was within the first year or two after we made the first video. And um, thankfully, the people agreed to do it. We had a, a monthly fee, a flat monthly fee, because we're a two-person company. We didn't want to deal with rev share details and administration. And it went on for years. And at one point, we had nine producers on there uh, paying a monthly fee to be there. And it helped us stay in the middle of this industry as a two-person company, helped them grow their businesses. And uh, it ended up being an experiment that worked and was really beneficial for us. Yeah, that was very clever when you did that. I mean, it was like you did that so fast and suddenly, you know, it's like, as you said, the idea that, oh, we're going to have all this competition. Wait a second. We're the first mover. People are coming to us. You know, we're getting 200 leads a month or whatever, which is mm -hmm. just a ridiculous amount for these like custom videos, like crazy. Yeah. And then I assume what happened is you picked the ones that you wanted to work with and um, had all the other ones go through the network. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We did filter through there. Um, you know, at the time, the videos that were getting traction and really getting a lot of views were our, what we call our original videos, which were not about a product. It's like wikis and blogs and, and things like that. So we wanted to keep making those videos because that was what was getting us more visibility and more visibility. But they didn't make us any money. I mean, the partner program at YouTube was not yet going uh, or just barely was. Um, but we could make a lot of money doing custom videos. And that put us in this weird dilemma where we really wanted to make the videos that weren't making us money. And we could support ourselves making the custom videos. <laughs> and we said, well, what are, what are we going to do? What does the future look like? We have this amazing opportunity. We're very fortunate to, to have this. What do we do with it? And um, I think it was really Sachi. She has an MBA. She's very like business oriented. And she said, you know, if we don't treat this opportunity the right way, it could ruin our lives. Like we might make a lot of money and hate it and not like each other. And if we if it if this opportunity ends up ruining our marriage, then what is it all for? Right. So let's be very careful. Let's be very diligent about how we treat this opportunity. Really, where we came down was thinking about videos like wikis and blogs and RSS that are not about products, thinking about those as licensable content that we can make once and sell multiple times. And that really came from people emailing us and saying, hey, I love your video on YouTube. I want to put it in my presentation. I want to put it on my intranet at work. I want to do yeah. you know, all these things with it. And we said, ah, this is it. This is a little you know, indication that there's something there. So we started using a, a hosted service where we could put a button next to our video that said, buy this video. And it was $18.99 for a download of, of wikis in plain English. We sold the first one within a few hours of it uh, being on the website. And uh, it wasn't enough to pay the bills, but it was the start of like the curve slowly moving up. Licensing is a business that's a, I say is a long bet. 
Custom videos are a short bet, licensing is a long bet, that you can eventually build enough content and enough subscribers that it will uh, you know, be passive income for years. Well, it's also amazing because I think all of those videos were freely available to watch, mm -hmm. right? So like, you know, it was a business built on trust too. And like honest relations, like where people were writing and saying, like, can I use this? And yeah. you're saying you can license it. I assume you didn't build some like advanced AI thing to like, you know, <laughs> troll the web. But it, it really did scale. Um, and it was just also funny because I think at a time it was at a time when like the studios were super concerned about piracy. Um, and in general, like music was very concerned about that. Streaming was not like Spotify was nothing close to what it is today. And yet you did this model that's like you know, a classic licensing model, and it actually worked, which is so cool. Yeah, I, I think that we were very fortunate to get that early sort of viral success from those videos that sort of jump-started the engine of attention that fueled it. Um, we did feel like we were doing something that nobody in the video industry that were like us that were doing. And people did often ask, like, really, that's what you're going to go after? You're not going to go after the agency side. But we really were we stuck to our guns. And I think that we agreed along that time that we would remain a two person business. That was part of this decision is that we liked being small. We liked being home based. We liked not having employees. And we decided in, in late 2008, like whatever happens with this opportunity, we're not going to have employees. Like it's just going to be us too. And that was a constraint that really opened up our thinking in terms of what we could do. Um, you know, being a two person, work from home, no board, you know, nobody to limit our thinking, nobody to like stand in our way. Uh, we could do whatever we wanted. And we really wanted to seize that opportunity to experiment and to, uh, you know, be prepared to weather a storm. I think that ultimately we said, if this doesn't work, we can reduce our expenses because we're just two people living at home. If this idea doesn't work, you know, it could cause a, a year of, of suffering, so to speak. Um, but we'll come through it and we are prepared for that. And, and that's really kind of what it took because to make the licensing model work, we really had to kind of get out of the custom business because the perception of the brand was either... Common Craft makes YouTube videos that are free, or you can hire them to make videos. And those were two things that we didn't want people to think anymore. We wanted people to think Common Craft equals video for my classroom. And once those perceptions of those early YouTube videos were in place, it was hard to change them. It's hard to get people out of the thinking like, oh, Common Craft is a YouTube channel, not a business that makes original videos for education. And it seems like that plays into also like, the long-term versus short-term mm -hmm. thinking, right? Like you're like, so, cause it does take time to change and evolve a brand. And I think it also seems like even saying you're going to be two people indefinitely was another constraint that also played into this. Like, well, if we are only two people and we want to support ourselves, like we could ramp off the custom videos faster and take a personal cut in terms of like, you know, vacations and other things that we're mm -hmm. doing like directly, which would give you the freedom to build the long-term thing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously, there's only so many hours in the day. Every time we're doing a custom video, we're not working on licensing. And licensing was the thing that we were trying to build over time. So we we uh, had to say no a lot. And uh, we're very fortunate to be in a position to do that. But that was one of the hardest things. Like I said no all the time. And I felt bad because I, sometimes we were approached by companies that I was like, wow, this would be amazing. I would love to do this, but I can't do it. Like we're focused. Like uh, I think that the agreement between my wife and I was was really kind of rock hard that like, this is our direction. We're going to do it for years. 
to see if it can work. Because if it can work, then we'll have you know the lifestyle that we want. Like I think we're we're huge believers in applying business strategies that look after your health and the way you think about things and your the, how you use time. And as a two-person company that's super agile, you know, we saw the potential to do that. That's awesome. What advice do you have for someone who's in the long-term bet, short-term bet like conundrum when they're trying to figure out what to do? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, we did it, we did both for years. We did uh, the occasional custom video uh, while we were doing our other videos. And it, it was it was a lot to do, but I think that just flipping the switch wouldn't have worked. Like we had to sort of, those curves had to kind of cross at some point. And I think doing both was good, but always being focused on what you're really, really trying to get to because that short-term custom video money is seductive. Like there's no doubt about it. Um, I think like for us, it really was thinking a lot about our expenses and what kind of storm we're willing to weather in order to test this fully, like to see if we can do it. Um, and having a relationship with the co-founder or with the team that everybody is in agreement on the vision and what it's going to take to get there. It's um, it's almost like the opposite of, well, it's not the opposite of it, but I think of it like with a traditional startup where people say, you know, I'm going to have to work 80 hours a week, but I believe in the vision. I believe in what this is going to create. And they're willing to take that sacrifice. Uh, for us, it was just, you know, a husband and wife saying that we can reduce our expenses enough to make it work. And I mean, obviously, you made that decision to have it be the two of you. And that created a lot of constraints. Most people wouldn't think, I think, to even consider the downsides of like scaling a business because there are many. <laughs> like, <laughs> and like what it would be on you personally, what it would be on your relationship and your life. And um, you, you made that call and then it, you actually got it to work. Um, we on this show have talked a lot about scale, a lot about growth, you know, and your story is so different and so unique. And actually in 2020, you wrote a book about this, mm -hmm. um, big enough building a business that scales with your lifestyle, which is a great book. I loved it as you know. Um, but can you walk people like, how do you even decide, Hey, now I need to write the book. Like what made you realize that the, the story of you and, and Sachi and like what you've done with common craft actually should be written up and this lesson should be pulled out. What made you realize that? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things there. Um, I think, first of all, I think my my entire professional perspective and I produce media, right? So I end up learning something new, becoming fascinated with it, doing some kind of project with it, and then feeling like I want to teach it. Like I want other people to see what I've learned and how I've done it. So The Art of Explanation, my first book was really about what all I'd learned about making ideas easy to understand and helping people benefit from that experience. Uh, Big Enough is a very similar thing where we spent a decade doing experiment after experiment and trying to make a business work that's two people selling a digital product. And I thought like, this is the time for this information because people are starting to rethink their professional lives, what they really want out of life, what does winning look like to them? You know, how do they change their career? And we thought the timing was right for that. And we didn't even know the pandemic was coming. It was it was published during the pandemic. So um, I think the timing was good for that. Um, and you know, this is maybe a little bit selfish, but I also think that uh, I wanted to tell my story. Like I wanted to get that part of my life in a form that's shareable and becomes a part of my history. Um, and then whatever I do after that is maybe going to be the next thing. And uh, we're actually in, involved in that now. But um, I think that those are the things. The next thing. <laughs> yeah, what's the next thing? <laughs> 
Well, we um, in 2017, we, we purchased property at a place called Orcas Island, which is off the coast of Washington State. In 2019, we started a, a custom home there. So we sold our house in Seattle that we had had since 2003, did a, a huge custom home project here, and just learned so much, became fascinated with the whole home construction process. Talk about talking too loud. I can talk about architecture and home stuff very loudly all day long. And would. Um, and <laughs> I love it. And so we created something called Build Livable, which is um, a way for homeowners to understand sort of the soup to nuts process of building a custom home, like how to work with architects, what to expect in each phase, how to plan and prepare. And hopefully that saves them time and money. So we developed an online course called the Custom Home Navigator, which is uh, for homeowners that are probably starting one of the biggest, most expensive projects of their lives and gives them a way to kind of understand it. It's kind of an, a big explainer for custom homes. It seems like custom homes can go really far off the rails, like pretty easily. <laughs> like, what advice do you have as someone who, you know, I, I've seen the photos, I've seen some videos of your new home, and it's it's beautiful. Um, how can someone make a beautiful home and a custom home and do it and not like lose everything or go way off the rails? <laughs> or like, what what advice do you have for folks on that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times it really comes down to the team that you work with. Um, you know, most custom homes involve an architect and a general contractor. And you're, the homeowner's relationship with them, how the homeowner works with them on a day-to-day -day basis really makes or breaks a lot of things. So I think a lot of, a lot of that goes into hiring them and being able to evaluate them and checking references and getting that team in place really matters. And then I'm a little biased because I'm teaching it, but I think that uh, it's a big, complicated thing. And anything a homeowner can do to understand What's going to happen? All the questions they're going to be asked. Like, you know, when I when I ask builders what what causes problems and they often say homeowners that are overwhelmed and indecisive. They don't have the confidence to make informed decisions. And sometimes they make decisions and then something has to be redone and that costs thousands of dollars. And so that's why we thought, well, maybe that's our job is to help people make informed decisions because if we can prevent one redo of something that a homeowner changed their mind on, then it you know it pays for the course many times over. Um, so I think being informed and, and working with the right team is you know the best advice. How do you know when you've made a good decision? That's a really good question. Um, I think when you know we often leaned on our team to say you know show me the options. What do you think is the right decision? We asked the professionals. We asked carpenters. We asked because people that are working on your project have seen homeowners just like you go through it many, many times. And they've seen people make good decisions and bad decisions. And we were very clear about telling people, we need to make a decision. What would you do? What would you do? What would you do? And oftentimes those things kind of meet in a place where it's like, okay, this is what they think. Now let's apply our values, our needs, and come down on something that we feel like, okay, this is it. And then the idea is to get it to stick, that you've made a decision on a direction and that you're not going to second guess it. It's like there is no returning from that decision. Like it's there, it's done. Only think forward because going back is what costs money. You can't go back. <laughs> like you got to keep going forward. So it's like making decisions with the confidence that this is the thing for the future because there's a ripple effect. Like there's, you know, one decision leads to another, leads to another. And that gets expensive if it has to be redone. Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about making a house as like a series of decisions that are like one, one way doors, mm -hmm. you know? 
Um, but that does make sense. I'm used to working in software where you make a decision and then you change it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. And it is totally. also interesting though, because obviously, you know, living in a home, especially if people are working remotely and they're in their homes all the time, like obviously we've seen this huge influx of home buying and like furnishings for homes. And, you know, when I moved into my house here, it was like waited months, like eight months for like rugs and crazy stuff happened. But also when you're using something every day, like little differences add up mm-hmm. and they compound in terms of what the experiences that they create, right? That, yeah, definitely. That's one of the big things we call the brand build livable. And we're big fans of this idea of livability of like, it's one thing to have a nice home that's beautiful and structurally sound. It's another thing that's actually designed for the way you live. And architects do that work. They ask those questions, but I think when homeowners are engaged at a level with that they can actually work with the architect to say, you know what, I have a dog. I want to keep the food here. This is where they're going to eat. And another example is like, okay, your house, you're going to make coffee or tea probably every day. Have you considered where that's going to happen? And is the kitchen designed to handle that activity? And what are all the other activities that you do every day that you can design for? You can actually optimize every activity and build a house that supports those things. And I don't think that's clear to homeowners. They have that potential. And uh, to me, that's the secret of making a custom home work is like realizing that you can make it livable specifically for you. And it's not a luxury. These are not decisions that cost more money, except for a little bit of time with working with the architect. These are things that everybody can do to say, like thinking ahead about what are the activities and how do I design for this is, I think, really powerful. Has anything about building a custom house and kind of starting ground up, like has any of the learnings from that come back into how you want to explain things? Like, has it changed your perspective? That's a really good question. Um, I think that it's a reminder about the curse of knowledge. I think working with builders and architects who are just thinking about homes all the time, uh, they experience the same thing we all do where they know so much it's kind of hard to know what a homeowner does and doesn't understand. And I I heard a story from a builder who said, you know, they've been working with an architect on these plans for months. And then he took a look at the the plans and said, well, you know, the house is going to be like this. And the homeowner said, "Uh, I don't want that. That's not, that's not what I want. And Mm. it was this kind of idea where they were not experienced reading house plans and imagining what it could look like. And uh, to me, that's an explanation problem. That's like something was happening in the relationship with the architect where they weren't comfortable asking for clarification or the architect was not great at, at making that easy to understand. And it's just a reminder that explanation is the problem everywhere. Yeah. And the curse of knowledge mm-hmm. can stop you from explaining things clearly. It's funny because even during this, right, Sylvia is sending me messages <laughs> and she's prompting me to make sure I hit questions with you that I know the answer to because I know your story so well. And as you're saying this, I'm like, wait, it's even happening right now. In this, just to make oh, sure you had to make meta. it meta. I, I had to. It. I love it. No, but it, it is. It, it, and it's funny because like we've had guests on the show that Savage knows really well. We've had guests that he doesn't know really well. And you can tell absolutely when there's like a history and a friendship there i'm like ask the obvious question yeah she's like telling me to ask i'm like i know the answer to that but the truth is it's a good point which is like if you're listening and you've never heard your story before like our mm-hmm. listeners never heard the comic craft story 
um, and your story, Itachi's story, then of course they want to know those basics. And back to good explanation, like if we didn't have it in here, it wouldn't work. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah, totally. Good job, Sylvie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the place to wrap up. <laughs> it is, I think. <laughs> With a pat on my back. We, dude, it's been, so, it's been so good to catch up. We have to do it in person at some point soon. I don't know when I'm next going to Seattle, but I want to see this house. Oh, we would love to host you guys. Bring the family. Just just let us know. Um, we'll, we'll make it happen. Where can people find you if they want to learn more or connect with you? Sure. Uh, my, my website's leelafever.com, and that has links to everything I do. CommonCraft is at commoncraft.com, and Build Livable, my current project, is at buildlivable.com. Awesome. Thanks for being here, and I can't wait to uh, come and crash your your new pad with the whole family let's do it chaos for you let's do it we have chaos (laughs) all right all right bye bye lee is such a nice guy i mean inviting my whole family to his house like think about the chaos that would ensue four-year-old a six-year-old me, I get hangry all the time. I'm constantly hangry. I'm constantly raiding people's snacks. <laughs> this is what he would be signing up for, but he seems just so happy and lovely to let that happen. I know. And uh, just a great explainer. He is. A great explainer of things. He really is. What'd you think about the whole cursive knowledge kind of conundrum? No, I mean, I think it is real. And it's funny, I was making that joke that you were like messaging me throughout the episode, but you actually were. And the things yeah, you were messaging me- Yeah, it wasn't a joke. Yes. It uh, was real. It was very real. But the things that you were messaging me about making sure we had the episode are some of the most fundamental things, which I had forgotten people don't know. And I think it is very, very real. And it's something that you have to work against in order to make things simple when you communicate, in order to say things that resonate, right? Like if you want to do that and people can't follow along, it's never going to work. So you have to figure out how to combat the curse of knowledge. Yeah. And... uh Something else I thought that was interesting was just like the idea that explanation is subjective and that like one person might not understand something that somebody else does. And so you kind of, it's kind of a tall order when you think about it to make an explainer video that gets, that gets, that That a lot of people, that cuts through. Thank you. No, I think it really is. Making things, getting things to their essence, getting things to be really, really simple, putting the just most fundamental basics in there. I mean, it's funny because he was talking about cryptocurrency. We talked about this a lot of the show. We talked about NFTs, all this stuff. But the truth is, when he said that, I was like, is there something that I have seen that is the truly simple explanation of what these new things are? And I would say, no, I don't think I have. And yet- The answer is no. There's like an enormous economy, all these things like happening around this, like millions of people paying attention to it. But like, where is the universal simple explanation that when you and I are having that conversation, you'd be like, oh, here you go. This just explains it. And I think that it's funny because it's like, it just shows you how hard it is. Because if it wasn't that hard, it would already exist. So marketers, entrepreneurs, product enthusiasts. Yeah, you got to work at it. Work to make stuff more simple and work to get rid of that curse of knowledge. And uh, I mean, Lee has tons of great materials that you can check out on commoncraft.com. Um, but just try to break out of your network, try to break out of the people that know everything and see if you can explain what you're doing to somebody who doesn't. Love that. Yes, if you can get there, I think you can really make something that resonates. Wonderful. Great. 
Well, that's our episode. Nice little gift of knowledge at the end there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Not a curse, but a, a curse, gift. but a gift. So yes, um, we'd love if you rate and review the show. If you like the show, please uh, please give us that old five star ding. Boom, love it. If you have feedback for us, please email us at ttlpod at wista.com. And otherwise, stay tuned for the next episode of Talking Too Loud, which will be coming out wherever you listen to podcasts at approximately two weeks. Amazing. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia, hosted by Chris Savage, produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day, executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.